How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. How can we use the tools of big data, networks, and an understanding of our digital infrastructure to shed light on power relationships and inequities? I'm Jeffrey Rockwell, director of the Cool Institute for Advanced Study at the University of Alberta. In her work as a digital humanities scholar, Dr. Dev Verhoeven is enlisting machine learning to redress the persistent domination of power elites. Her work applies innovative analytic techniques as a critical weapon in a revitalized feminist arsenal. Here's Dev Verhoeven with our host, Katrina Ingram. Dr. Verhoeven, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, before we dive into talking about your research, I understand that you recently learned that your research is featured on a can of alcoholic beverage. Can you tell me about that? I know, how hilarious. It's so funny. I only found out about this by accident, but I did some research a few years ago on the statistical dominance of men named David in funding regimes. And what we discovered was that not only was David the most commonly funded name, it was a name that um, applied across different kinds of funding, so research funding and other sorts of funding as well. And people got very excited about this and we coined a new phrase, which is the phrase diversity. So people would say, oh, you know, we have such a problem with diversity. And I'd say diversity is never the problem. Diversity is the solution. The problem is diversity. Too many Davids get funded, right? So this is kind of fun. And and there's a hashtag in Twitter, the diversity hashtag. Anyway, I'm, I'm sitting innocently at my computer last week and I got an email from a friend saying, you will never believe this. I just bought a can of what's called hard lemonade, which is alcoholic lemonade. And it's called Girls Just Want to Have Funding. And on the back of the can, they summarize the diversity problem. So it's like my research finally made it into the wide world of alcoholic beverages. And I'm kind of like, wow, if they'd ever funded my research, which is part of the problem that it didn't get funded because I'm not a David, I I wouldn't just have a can with my my research on it. I'd have an entire brewery. You know, I could change my research KPIs into IPAs or something like that. And it kind of, this kind of has a real great resonance in Australia because in Australia we have this thing where the government a few years ago said they were only going to fund research that passed the pub test. And the pub test is a kind of a hypothetical measure of the acceptance of your work by everyday Australians, right? Oh. So it's it's this idea that your research somehow resonates with the common people, and I put that in inverted commas, rather than the elite ivory tower of other researchers, right? So the, the actual minister responsible for funding research in Australia said he would have this additional measure by which he would test research called the pub test. So I figure my research absolutely now (laughs) meets the measure of the pub test because you can drink it in a pub. (laughs) That is an amazing, I love this story on so many levels. I feel like A, I need to change my name to David and B, I need to get some of this girls just want to have funding. This is fantastic. (laughs) I always said I wanted to name myself David Davidson. Actually, we also found out, so David was the most commonly funded name, but the most lucratively funded name was Richard, of course, because it's a pun, rich, Richard. (laughs) 
lots of funding. So, you know, if you really want to cover your bases, you should be David Richardson or David Richard Davidson. Or I love like it. I love it. Now, you're someone who wears many hats. And I suppose formally I'm talking uh, with you in your capacity as the Canada 150 Chair of Gender and Cultural Informatics and your connection to the University of Alberta and also because your work relates to data and AI, but both you and your work cross a lot of boundaries. And I was looking for this way to unify everything, some kind of a nice theme to tie it all together. And I've heard you say that you're on a mission to use data to destroy patriarchy. So I thought, let's start there. Uh, tell me about this mission. What led you to this? I'm not sure I can even say what led me to it. I mean, my lifelong passion has been to redress the, the domination of patriarchy and, and we can characterise that in many different ways in different fields and, and I accept that, you know, we need a very intersectional approach to even understanding what patriarchy is. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, it's become increasingly apparent as we dive further and further into cohabitation with the computational as a society that the mathematical, the statistical and the quantitative are all pivotal to understanding the operations of contemporary power. We can't really move forward at redressing these asymmetries that we live with without understanding the statistical, the quantitative and the mathematical. And I'm, I don't come from that background. I, I don't have a background in mathematics or statistics. I didn't train in, in relation to data, but, you know, I've acquired these things along the way because mm. without them, I, I don't feel like I really have a feminist arsenal that meets the problem of redressing contemporary power imbalances. And, and when we talk about this, I think we, you know, we have often think of mathematics as the numerical. Um, it's not just about counting. You know, if we're going to make people accountable, yes, there is counting involved, but it has to be more than just adding up things or, or figuring out what doesn't add up. We need to actually use these tools, these new tools that are at our disposal, these, uh, I guess, new ways of, of gathering evidence and presenting and analysing data as part of our arsenal. Mm -hmm. and, and that, I guess, comes from this idea that data does more than describe. Um, yeah. And I think that's also very fundamental to the way I work. So, my belief is that data can be used to diagnose and it can be used to intervene and that data at its heart has a capacity to propose and inspire social change. And that's that's really my, my inflection and, and my attraction to working with data. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you uh, talk about how you think about data and what is the role of data and what's your relationship to data, um, why it's important and where are its limitations. And I feel like we're at this moment where we're really enamored with data, in particular, big data. And we have more tools in the form of uh, things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, that are helping us to manage and process vast amounts of data. What role is AI playing in terms of your work? That's a really great question because I, d I really don't understand what AI is. My, my sense of what AI is is that, that it's a preemptive marketing term that describes a sort of a philosophy or an ideology of computation. And it's built around the idea that computational agency is uh, expanding at the diminishment of human agency. Is, that's my sense of what AI means. So we're diminishing the human aspect of computational thinking or decision-making and 
uh, creating a, a larger space for the idea of computational agency. So AI for me walks away from the belief that there's a fundamental interdependence between the human and the computational. Mm. And that's actually where I sit. I don't sit in the in the the camp that says we must be scared of our computational overlords because they're running amok and they're they they're unaccountable, which is often what AI seems to mean. Um, I actually believe that there's an you know a, a, a strong relational interdependent cohabitation between the human and the computational. So for me, AI is a kind of computational exceptionalism, and I'm not sure I'm completely in that belief that I, I, I don't in fact think that that's even possible that we can have computational exceptionalism. And what do you mean by computational exceptionalism? Can you unpack that just a little bit? Well, I think it's just what I was saying earlier. I think it's this idea that com- the computational is somehow able to be extracted from its relationship to the human mm. um, and that these are set up in some sort of binary opposition, which, mm. again, is a very limited way of thinking. And so I, I'm, I'm also mindful or cognizant of the idea that a lot of this is simply about providing the gloss of the new and, and this idea of the marketing of software that startups rely on and Silicon Valley is so dependent on. And so things that we would once have called image processing or algorithmic applications are all of a sudden now called AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's also about trying to undo some of that uh, additional packaging that mm-hmm. otherwise sort of straightforward analytical processes that hummed along innocently in previous years, but are now all part of this kind of scary AI thing. Yeah. So, yeah, look, and I think that if we, just to expand on that idea of computational exceptionalism, I think one of the the ways that plays out is not just in terms of fear-mongering and making us all scared of, you know, the, the robot future that will, you know, subject humans to slavery or whatever the kind of fantasy is. I am fascinated by the idea that, AI is sometimes invoked in order to let humans off the hook for decisions that were, in fact, human decisions, but apparently the computer says no and therefore there's nothing the human can actually do in relation to what the computer says. Um, and we see see that in recent examples, like the Dutch government very recently, the entire government resigned over a scandal in which they used algorithmic decisions to send debt notices to about 20,000 people who were ordered to repay monies to the government, which then transpired they didn't actually owe. Um, And we, in fact, in Australia had a much larger scandal where 900,000 people were sent debt notices and there there was an enormous amount of social pain and trauma as a result of this process. But in Australia, the government hasn't resigned because the computer did it. It was right. all about the computer. Yeah. And, and in that sense, I think AI has a different role. It's a, it's a kind of way of creating, um, well, a form of human exceptionalism, I guess, which is this idea that humans aren't responsible anymore. It's all the computers. Yeah, it's quite interesting because you've kind of painted a picture of, of sort of a couple of different dynamics. And, and one is, you know, it's this all powerful thing and it's going to take over. Um, and in another, it's kind of this dumb thing that we can blame. Oh, it made, you know, the AI did the thing, whatever, whatever that is. It sent the notices out. So it lets us off the hook as, as humans. 
I want to talk a bit more about um, your own kind of relationship, your own personal relationship to big data. You've mentioned in prior talks that you've had these existential data crisis moments. And I just wanted to ask about that and see if you might be able to share one of those sort of what was behind that experience. Typically, people think of big data because of the word big as having something to do with size. But of course, that's that's not a really useful definition of big data because size is relative. You know, um, what might constitute big data for someone in the humanities may for someone in astronomy be almost negligible. Big data is really data that in a sense, we are unable to process using the computational tools we have to hand easily, you know. Um, and, and in that sense, I guess we can take into to account the relativity of, of this notion of what constitutes big data. But for me, you know, I think that there's an even more fundamental kind of problem around this obsessive interest in the size of data. And that is that, you know, yuck, yuck, it's not the size of your data that counts, it's what you do with it that matters. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that tells us a lot more about what we think of in terms of the usefulness or not usefulness of big data. And I, I want to give an example of um, that idea that big data stretches us to the limits of what we're capable of. So if big data is something that stretches our capabilities, that pushes at the boundaries of, of what we can do, then big data, in a sense, is always about the existential. Like if you're not having an existential crisis in front of your data, then it's not big because you're not actually, in a sense, um, questioning what it is you're capable of or what it is you can do. Uh, And I think that that sense of the existential at the heart of big data is really, really important. And we can think about that in, in a number of different ways. So or I like to use this anecdote about uh, UN data on uh, forcible displacement. So the UN a few years ago discovered that uh, 65.3 million people were forcibly displaced in one year in 2016. Now, that's a very big number, and, and it does sort of push us at the, to the limits of our capacity to understand what that would even mean. What is 60.5.3 million people? So to make sense of it, the UN said, well, that's 24 people forcibly displaced every minute or two people every time you breathe. Okay. If you hear that and you find it hard to breathe, if you catch your breath, then I think you've understood that number as big data. If when you hear that, you start to try and figure out, well, if that's 24 people a minute and two people, I must be breathing 12 times a minute, then you're thinking of it as a factoid or as small data. You're breaking it down into smaller components that you can apply a very simple kind of mathematical equation to. So the the difference for me in that number is that the big data component of that number is the one that pushes you to to an existential response, to a response that's tied to your very self. Whereas if you think of 65.3 million people in a year in small data terms, then you're able to kind of divide it up and, and compute it in, in a way that seems very familiar to you and using tools to hand. So it's the, not the size of the number itself. It's in, in a sense how you position yourself in relation to that number. If it implicates you, if it makes you catch your breath, then it's big data. Mm. Big data is monumentally detailed. That's what distinguishes it. And it's infinitely interconnected. And it implicates us. 
That's big data. So it has both epistemic implications. It pushes what we can know and how we can know it, but it also has ontological ones because it questions human-centered methods. We need, we do need computational tools to help us process it. And it has existential dimensions. Mm. It pushes to the heart of where we think we stand in relation to either the data or each other, in a sense, or to machines. So you can't work with big data without yourself leaning into an interconnected world. You have to recognise that your outlook is in every other aspect touching some other outlook. I'm curious to know, though, if if that's because of where uh, of the background that you've brought to this work, Um, because it seems to me that there's also another thing that can happen when you hear a big number. You can become very numb to it. And um, I'm curious about this because as a qualitative researcher, I feel very close to my data, my small data. But then we have these big data sets um, and I, I work on interdisciplinary research teams and I see people who don't really feel connected to that data in the way maybe that you're talking about because it's just a number it's just some abstraction and it's just a lot of numbers I I don't know have you encountered that or have you thought about that your own background kind of informing maybe that perspective I think in that in those instances people are thinking of the data in small terms you know they're Mm -hmm. thinking of it as numbers and not as you know, large, interconnected, infinitely detailed, scalable collections of data that we might ourselves also be in, you know, yeah. in some way, like, you know, that we're not outside it. And I, and I think when we, when we think about the way we often talk about data, it's typically at arm's length. Um, it's in a sense, you know, a, just a computer screen in front of us and we face it frontally rather than understand how we're immersed in it. And that they're the moments that I think are the most interesting where we start to draw out of the data the most interesting, the most potentially inspiring kinds of projects rather than the ones where we just simply apply small data techniques that we're familiar with to just very large sets of numbers. And, and yeah, there is a place for that sometimes. I'm not suggesting that there's a hierarchy of ways of working with the data. There isn't. They're just different approaches. And to truly understand big data as big data, then I think it does implicate us at the level of of who we are and what we're capable of. Yeah, I I love that. That's a very interesting way of, of thinking about it. I've also heard you say that we're getting good at dealing with historical data, but we're not good at dealing with data historically. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, this was sort of a um, a little aphorism that I developed because I was dealing a lot with historians that were really keen on producing historical data sets. But when they built databases or when they created data techniques for understanding those historical data sets, they didn't think about the temporality of those infrastructure themselves. So, uh, for example, the internet itself is not very good at capturing its own history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not perceived of as being something that produces different ways of thinking about temporality. So computational data sets, data sets that are developed using computer software programs, computer-based software programs, have had all sorts of difficulties in, in terms of thinking about temporality and time, even um, date sets. So uh, anyone who's worked on global data understands that we all record time, even just at the level of day and date, differently. Sometimes it's day first, month, then year, and sometimes it's and so on. Many people, when they first built databases, 
in the very early days of database invention and creation didn't have date fields that would work prior to, you know, 1900 because they didn't think that anyone would ever need those kinds of date fields. But even when we look at early versions of software that were designed to produce animations and, and so on, they were built around a particular use of constructing time that was specific to each computer rather than some other notion of temporality. So when we, when we talk to historians when I talk to historians about not just looking at historical data, but thinking about data historically, I'm talking to them about how they would actually think about, for example, just file version management and tracking that allows researchers to see how files and directory structures have changed and evolved over time in a database system. Code versioning, uh, things like uh, concepts like graceful degradation in which we think about how to design the functionality of a database in such a way that it can continue to operate even when software itself changes um, and so on. So there's those kinds of very specific tech-driven ways of thinking about what are the temporal structures in the softwares and the, the tools that we're using to analyse historical data. How, so how are we ourselves participating in the invention of time and temporality in relation to our tools? But also thinking about if we're going to work historically with big data, for example, thinking about how our digital research efforts are embedded and relational and, in, and enacted as much as our data itself is. So thinking about time as a practice in terms of our computational tools is something I don't think we've been very good at. It's, I mean, so many fascinating thoughts. Um, Y2K popped into my head as you were describing yeah. the limitations of um, just, you know, how we actually structured things um, in the computer to account for dates. And wow, the year 2000, so far off, who would have thunk we actually got there? Um, and then the other thing that um, occurs to me is uh, the idea of, you know, paper-based or physical records versus those that are stored in databases and just um, how we maybe didn't have to think about these things in quite the same way. It's not to say that those physical artifacts would never um, degrade, but you can still pick up a piece of paper from 100 years ago, let's say, and, and have a look at it. And yet, when you think about a database that was perhaps created even 25 or 30 years ago, um, you know, how, how do we access that? Yeah, look, that's just spot on. I mean, that's, that's so, you know, one of the things I guess I'm asking is the way we think about how both our conventional disciplinary backgrounds, but also the technical standards that we have conventionally worked with have acted temporally, have acted as a, a way of setting a notion of time and history to regulate this idea that we are working towards a more capacious or better informed future. Like this is all adding up to some notion of the future, yeah. um, which, which is questionable. And, and the, the question here is, well, as we sit facing a kind of global climate apocalypse, is why, why are we doing this? Why are we building these, these archives that are built around the notion of accumulation and a sense of perpetuity that may or may not be realistic? Mm -hmm. And, and so we're using 19th century frameworks for this idea of the archive or the collection or the database in a very, very different historical place and time. And that's that idea of it's not just about the historical data, it's about thinking about where we are now, historicising this moment as well 
and thinking about the contingencies that we live in and that we practice in and how they change our relationship to these very 19th century ideas about collection and, yeah. and data. Well, I want to ask you about, you know, how we access, and this is something that we all do every day. We go to the internet, we search for information. You talk about the limitations of how we search for information, the limitations of the single search box. And I want to ask about that. And I'm not sure if you would contextualize that as a, as a 19th century technology or, or how you might think about that. Well, the single search box is is a kind of curious one, isn't it? And, and really Google has made it the, the default now for all kinds of ways of thinking about search. And we don't tend to sit down and A, think about, well, what's behind the single search box? Like what is a Google search? Like what is it searching and how is it structuring the search? You know, we probably had a better idea of how libraries organised information because we would walk into them and we could see how books were arranged and we understood that there was a system, a numerical system of ordering them even if we didn't think too much about that or even understand necessarily some of the really deeply problematic ways in which the Dewey Decimal System works. Single search box is even more deceptive because it's typically an empty box that you can type something into. And so it it relies on the idea that the starting point for a search is a word or a term or a named entity, to use a more technical phrase. And it's entirely reliant on a linguistic framework and on keyword indexing. So there's no other avenues for engaging with knowledge, no other pathways um, through the visual, for example, or through the geospatial or through the temporal. It's a word. It's a linguistic framework. And so behind that then are a bunch of sophisticated algorithms that rank results that we are not given any insight into that determine degree of relevance, that can filter results and so on. But those things are mysterious to us. We just have the words we, we type in. Um, I think that there's other limitations around that as well, that you can only search for what you can already name. So if you're actually genuinely looking for something you don't already know, too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it limits serendipity because it's, again, only asking you to to search on what's known to you already, not what's unknown to you around the the corner. And it assumes that text is an adequate analogue for concepts, which I think, you know, many cultures would disagree with. There are many other ways of thinking. It doesn't deal well with overlaps or context-specific terms. I mean, if you typed in, you know, Venus de Milo, you you might get statues, you might get, you know, um, restaurant, depending on how the, the algorithm has ranked results. So there's there's no real sense there that you're able to provide context for the specific thing that you might be looking for other than just by continuing to type in words until you finally get to something that where you've changed your search in order to produce results that you want to see as opposed to results that might be helpful. That is super interesting. As you're explaining this, I was thinking about back back in the old days when I used to go to the library and I used to just kind of wander around the aisles and sometimes something would catch my eye. It could be a color, could be the size of a book, and I'd kind of pull it off the shelf and have a look. And and there are all kinds of really interesting discoveries that you could make uh, that way. And now it really is very much what are you looking for? You kind of have to have a sense of what you're looking for. And I don't know, is that just a limitation of the way that we do search now? Like, for example, is it just a limitation of this sort of, um, you know, digital dimensional um, world that we live in versus, a you know, a physical world where we can look at shape and color and other kinds of things? 
Look, I think it's a kind of a result of the historical legacies of where information management found itself even during that period of library engagement that you're describing. Um, sitting behind the ways in which information was organised were ontologies and ontologies were structured vocabularies and structured vocabularies were built around views of the world that corresponded in particular to typically, you know, a small number of white men in English language countries. And that was already built in or hardwired into the limitations of the ways in which we organised knowledge and our access to it. So what we have now is a, is a more or less extreme version of that where, you know, the, the kinds of information management systems on offer to us are highly limited by these structured vocabularies. And we've been experimenting with what you might do differently, like how would you build, these are called ontologies, these, these ways of, of organising the way the world interrelates. Um, what would happen if we enabled people to build ontologies on the fly? Um, and so we've uh, various different researchers have been experimenting with the idea of unstructured vocabularies, which are in a sense um, vernacular, like they're they're driven by people's own desires or abilities to to describe things. Um, they're still very text based, unfortunately, um, at this point in time, but they're much more relational in the sense that they describe relationships between things that are generated by people rather than pre-existing frameworks that were defined historically by other people that you may or may not agree with. When I think about single search box, I mean, Google's a little bit different because you can type into Google cinema or film and it will come back with results, obviously. But if you go into a library database system, Typically, you would have to type in motion pictures to get results in an archive related to the cinema. Now, nobody uses phrases like motion pictures these days, no matter how accurate that is as a description of, of those objects. They are pictures that move. But this idea of structured vocabularies is great for interoperating the data, but not really great for engaging humans who are defining themselves, I guess, in terms of search. It's not a way of sitting down and thinking about what is it that humans search for and how do humans search. It's about the descriptions of the data that make the data easy to work with. Yeah, this is fascinating. I want to switch gears just a little bit, though. I want to talk about networks um, and move from data to networks. So how do you define networks as it relates to your work? So I have a couple of different ways of that, of thinking about networks in relation to my work. The first is, um, as I was just talking about, you know, this idea of trying to get us to understand our relationship to the information that we work with or the data that we work with, which we also want to see as relational. So to build relationships between the researcher and the research and, and then to also build relationships within the research. So that's kind of multi-layered approach to take. And it's one that I worked on for a long time in Australia, in, particularly in the Australian context, but you know, also informed by my feminism, because one of the things that we know is that if we want to redress domination, then we have to understand that data represents power and represents domination. So we need to understand data as relational, as somehow describing behaviours, not just collections of things or numbers. And if you start to do that, then you start to work with different kinds of data. 
because just looking at aggregate data where you've added things up doesn't necessarily show you the behaviours and relationships that exist in the, the field that you've collected the numbers around. So I'll give you an example. Um, we analyse the film industries in many countries and we do that using data. So if we look at the data describing the number of women directors in the Australian film industry, the European film industry and the American film industry, it's a very, very similar number. It's about 16% of all directors in those industries tend to be women or tend to identify as women. And that's really great. That tells us that, you know, there's, a, there's definitely a domination problem in those industries, but it doesn't tell us how to solve that problem. Right? It just tells us there is one. It's, it's described something, but it hasn't given us a sense of how to intervene other than to lift the numbers. And the, the big mistake I think that often happens at that point is that everyone then becomes very numerically focused on just getting the numbers to work. So they'll, they'll focus on let's increase the numbers of, of women in the industry, right? Now, that's, that's a, a reasonably good objective to have. But there are additional issues in the film industry. For example, we also discovered on a global basis that films directed by women only share 3% of all the screenings of movies in the world. So you can increase the number of women, we could make the number of women 50%, but if only 3% of the screenings of the world are then directed by those women, that's not helping. That's not helping people have access to work by women, to films by women, and so on. So we have to actually try and think about not just the numbers at the level of the description of the entire enterprise, but how will the data teach us or tell us where the decisions are occurring and what we can do at that level, at the point at which the decisions are made about who gets to direct a film or who gets to have their film distributed. So we have to work with different data and that's where we have to start working with relational data or network data. So a lot of my work is also around trying to rethink those familiar ways of analysing domination to a more interventionist analytic technique, which is network science. And that, that's been really, really interesting. So there's that as well. So that's two different ways of thinking about networks. And then the third way of thinking about networks is to actually reflect on what we understand as a relation or a network and how that might differ in different circumstances. And again, this gets back to that thing we were talking about earlier about thinking historically and not just looking at historical data or prior data as a training set for an algorithm or so on, but thinking about the context, the historical context or the, the time and place in which we understand not just the data, but our own frameworks. So I'm really interested at the moment in evaluating or re-evaluating my use of data and relational data in particular by rethinking what we mean by the relational does the relational pivot, for example, around difference? Does it pivot around similarity? Is the relational actually something that's a capacity rather than a line between two things? These are all really big questions and the, the kinds of data techniques we currently have may not necessarily help me solve or explore those definitions of the relational. So we may need new techniques. Yeah. 
again, so much to unpack here. Uh, a couple of interesting things that triggered for me that 16% is approximately the same number of women that work in AI as AI researchers. Um, it, it hovers around 16 to 20%, depending on which study you look at. So that's kind of interesting. And then there, I think there's a sense that, well, if we just make that 50%, the rest will sort itself out. Um, you talk about these other kind of um, barriers that are kind of embedded in this in terms of screenings, for example. And I, I kind of, we have, it's almost like we have this assumption that if we just kind of move that big metric, then it flows through the rest of it. Um, and you're saying that it doesn't. So that's interesting too. Um, and, uh, and then when it comes to relationships and um, relating, uh, so the things that strike me um, are personal relationships. So how I relate to someone I know or don't know or heard about from a friend or are they a stranger and we're meeting for the first time and then how all of the dynamics of that um, are lost in, in things like a LinkedIn uh, profile or something, you know, the ways we currently look at, at data right now. So all of that just kind of hit me as you were describing uh, the many layers uh, to your work. Yeah, we're, we're really good at trying to produce complexity around the description of entities, right, the, the, the things, but we're not really good in Western societies and cultures at describing the nuances of the relations. And I think that's, that's the thing I keep trying to say is we need to be giving the same level of attention to the relationships and trying to work out are they are they strong relationships and how do we how do we produce worlds with good relations yeah. not good numbers good relations right yeah. and that should be the focus of, of where we're going your comment about the 16 percent is interesting because it's there are various numbers that come up time and time again another one is about 27 percent seems to be another common um, what I call plimsoll line point, you know, it's a flotation point where we're allowed to have diversity or minorities up to certain statistical points. And after that moment, patriarchy seems to kind of push them back down again. And that would suggest that there's a, a common problem that patriarchy is the same in different industries or different jurisdictions, like in Australia or America or Europe or whatever. And in fact, when we did detailed network analysis of film industries in different places, even though the aggregate statistics looked incredibly similar and would suggest there is this plimsoll line, this line where if you if the, the floodwaters of diversity exceed that line, you know, the ship will sink, the entire enterprise will disappear. Um, it's not actually true that my patriarchy is the same as your patriarchy. If we get down and look under the under the hood of of all those relations that we were discussing before, they're very different. Mm -hmm. So each industry might look similar at the aggregate level, at the statistical level, but the solution or the intervention points will be different. And that's that's very, very interesting to me and something that I will be exploring in a, in a forthcoming project where I'm working with researchers in the UK and in Europe and in Canada on this very question how do we redress the domination of white men in these industries? And, and I think what we're going to find is that even though statistically they may look similar at the aggregate level, we will have to come up with different solutions for each industry. Thirdly, research that I've done that, that pertains to your observations is around um, some research we did on board composition for uh, companies listed on the stock market in Australia. So there's been a big push, as there has in Canada, to try and get numbers of women on company boards to be more equitable. 
and the aim was to get 30%. So we're going off a very low base, trying to get 30%. And in Australia, they reached 30% a couple of years ago. And this was, you know, there's a big celebration. Yay, we've, we've reached 30%. So there are several things to say about this. The first is it wasn't 30% of board people, of unique people. It was 30% of board seats. So a very small number of women filled those 30% of seats. And those women were not especially diverse. They tended to reflect other attributes of the men in those board seats as well. They were typically rich. They were typically white. They were typically already inter- interconnected in the network in some way. So that, that, that's an exa- a really good example of how aggregate statistics can give you a very false picture around equity and diversity and inclusion. But the other thing we discovered is that those women also adopted positions in the network that were very different from the men in the networks, the board networks. And that is that firstly, they were overrepresented in terms of what we call degree centrality. So they had a very high level of connection to other people. And that's because there were a small number of them on a, on a lot of boards. So they were obviously working with on average, a larger number of people. So that gave them a kind of an influence. You know, they had a very good local influence. They had lots of people connected to them. But what they didn't have is what we call betweenness centrality, which is a kind of systemic power. Betweenness centrality is how, how many times someone has to go through you to get to another part of the network. And in fact, they are, over the period of time we analysed, women reduced their betweenness capacity. So in a sense, what the board networks were doing was saying, you can have local power if you work hard and you work on lots of boards, you can have some influence on those limited circumstances, but you don't get to have systemic power. You don't have that, that, that critical in-betweenness that men in those networks were able to adopt. So I, found, I find this network analysis very interesting because it gives us a lot more nuance in thinking about how domination continues and persists for patriarchy. You know, how is it the patriarchy has been so persistent and it just comes up with all these different strategies for ensuring that even if you can get the numbers to increase, your influence or power doesn't necessarily increase I want to touch on uh, the mob and criminal network analysis, which is a, a really interesting uh, technique that you've applied in the course of your work. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, that's that was sort of my introduction to this this type of analysis, and it came from a various set of personal circumstances. So, I um I began uh, as a student working in the film industry at the same time that I was studying. And it became very clear to me that there were all sorts of issues for equity and inclusion in the industry for women. And I became a, an activist and an advocate as well as eventually an academic. And, you know, I'd spent a sort of a lifetime, I guess, trying to pre- prepare and produce a, an, an, a film industry that did better for women and for all kinds of women. And about three years ago, I was sitting at my desk and an email appeared in front of me and it was the National Screen Agency of Australia reporting its data on participation rates for women. It does this every year. There's nothing surprising there. So I opened the email unsuspectingly only to discover that the data was yet again terrible, but not just terrible. It was worse 
than it was 30 years earlier when I started working in the industry. And I had one of those, well, existential crisis moments that we talked about earlier in this this podcast where I I kind of had one of those levitational rage moments. You know, I kind of hit the roof. I was so incandescent with anger, partly I think because I was just having a midlife crisis moment. You know, I was just sitting there thinking, where did I go wrong? You know, I spent 30 years trying to improve a situation and it's actually gotten worse. And and how is that even possible? Now, I know that that wasn't entirely up to me. I, I wasn't the sole person responsible for equity in the industry. I, I do get that. But when you're having a midlife crisis moment, it's kind of equal parts despair and hubris. So you get to that point where you think, it was me. Something I did was terrible here. And you know, I get that that's a very specific thing. Anyway, it occurred to me, two things really occurred to me around this. And the first is that uh, data, when it's repeatedly bad like that, actually has a power. And, and this was the beginning of me starting to realise that we could use data to intervene in situations, not just describe them. And we could intervene actively rather than thinking of data as having power simply because it's of its character, it can actually help us analyze and intervene. So for me, that idea that data has a power has a power in itself became very interesting because if you repeatedly have bad data about, for example, women's participation rates, then there's no incentive for women to participate. Like you just look at the data and go, well, why would I do that? You know, and it almost naturalizes it. You know, it's like women can never be more than 16%. So it's, that's not going to work for me. I'm not going to play those odds. And it must be natural that there's, there's no reason for anything because it's, there's been 30 years of it and we, we keep developing these policies to try and change that situation and they don't work. So, you know, we make women lean in, we give them development funding, we um, you know, give them more training because, of course, the problem must be with them, right? And that's where, you know, the next kind of, profound moment of thinking occurred to me, which is why do we keep collecting data about women? Women are not in a position to change the industry. They're not, they don't have the, the purchase in the industry to actually produce the change. So why, why have they become the focus? Why aren't we studying the beneficiaries of the system to work out how they need to change to make it more equitable? And who are the beneficiaries of the system? Well, in this particular binary and not especially inclusive way of describing the industry, that would be men. Men dominate the industry. Men benefit from the industry staying the same. So why aren't we looking at data about men? So I I did that. I produced a network visualisation of men and women in the industry. And what we discovered through that that process was that something like uh, 75% of the male film producers over a 10-year period in the industry had never worked with a woman or had worked with one one woman over that period of time. 42% had never worked with a woman at all. They'd never selected a woman for their key creative team. So straight away, you know, here is, here is a, a potential way of thinking about how to create change. Bringing back that idea that data has a kind of a power, I, I thought, well, who uses data to intervene in these sorts of networks? Who, who actually 
has an approach or a a form of analysis that would enable me to understand how to change this? And there is an answer. And the answer is the police and counterterrorism agencies. They use a, a form of network analysis called criminal network analysis, and they use it to break up drug cartels and they use it to, to break up terrorist cells. And I thought, okay, what if I treated the film industry like a criminal cartel? I could find out who the key players were. And well, obviously I'm not like the FBI or the CIA. I can't actually take out the key players. But, you know, we could at least work out who they were and then we could think about policies that might defund them or, you know, like maybe there's a way that this would work. So I did. I did that. I worked out who the key players in the industry were, who are the guys who don't work with women. And we call them the gender offenders in honour of criminal network analysis. And there were, you know, there were a few of them and I know their names because this is the great thing. If you start to treat it, this is a small data set, but if you start to treat it like big data, it's infinitely detailed and we can see right down to the, the minute level who these guys are. You have to tell me how many were named Richard Davidson. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, I can't tell you their names. (laughs) I can tell you that some of them were criminals, though, which is also really interesting. When you do criminal network analysis, you find out that some of these guys actually went to prison. Mm -hmm. Um, However, the the interesting thing about that, again, is that we produced a network visualisation of these these men that don't work with women. And around the edge are, are some men who don't appear to be very interconnected to the rest of the, the gender offenders. Typically, in the past, a, a criminal network analyst would look at those and say, oh, they're, they're kind of not very powerful, they're probably irrelevant, don't focus on them. But a subsequent generation of criminal network analysts now say, actually, these these isolates is what they're called, outliers or isolates, they're actually really interesting because what they tell you is there's another attribute that you don't have currently but that will connect them to the centre. And I thought, okay, what, what could that attribute be? So I started to look at all the different attributes that I hadn't incorporated into my analysis. So obviously it wasn't race, it wasn't age because I checked on those. So we had men of all races and men of all ages in my gender offender network. It was class. Mm. Almost all the men in the network went to private, wealthy, boys-only schools. And so this became, again, another really kind of interesting facet of doing this kind of analysis is that it produced something that we genuinely hadn't expected, which is an analysis driven not just by gender but by class as well. So it's, it's producing a more intersectional notion of power rather than just foregrounding gender alone maybe we do need to also be looking at other factors in the way in which domination is able to persist in these industries. Uh, and I think that that's, that's another kind of interesting learning moment from doing this much more networked analysis. You know, network analysis enables us to understand the social relationships at the heart of patriarchy and, and other forms of domination. And, and that's why I, I really enjoy working with it. That is super interesting. And it's sort of like, you know, confirming uh, the the old boys network uh, kind of idea. I want to I want to take one more step out from networks. I want to talk about infrastructure before we wrap up. So this idea of digital infrastructure, perhaps you could start by just defining um, what is digital infrastructure and then maybe talking a bit about uh, the connections, the links, the relations between um, the materialized, um, or all these, how all these things are materialized in digital environments. 
So infrastructure is the capacity to initiate or create connection, right? If we think about infrastructure in the broader sense, it's, you know, communications infrastructure is creating connections based on communication technologies. Um, Shipping infrastructure is the ability to use seafaring as a form of connection and so on. So it's this sense of the providing the conditions for the possibility of connection. I think that's how I would define infrastructure. So digital infrastructure simply does that computationally. And so how do we do that? And we do that in many different ways. Digital infrastructure can include um, our, um, it overlays with communications infrastructure. So we use different um, platforms and software for communicating. Email is an obvious one. WhatsApp, Messenger, Facebook, these are all forms of, of digital infrastructure because they enable the possibility of connection. And what about AI? What's the role of AI in terms of digital infrastructure? Well, again, if I go back to what is AI, and um, for me, AI is in a way uh, a marketing term that captures a whole bunch of different things, um, often for purpose. So it's designed, it's a kind of, way of describing a bunch of different computational technologies, which will include digital infrastructure in order to make us alarmed or make us feel that humans weren't responsible or, you know, I have a very um, purposeful definition of AI in this sense, I guess. Um, so, yeah, AI sits, sits within digital infrastructure. Um, it can be part of the ways in which digital infrastructure is supported or analysed or you know, enables um, companies to exploit the kinds of ways in which we connect. And, and kind of on that point, um, the point of, of connecting, how do you see humans and humanity kind of engaging with digital infrastructure? Um, what is, you know, where, where do you think that is going? Is it changing, for example, because of some of the new uh, tools that we're seeing? Or what, what's the journey that we're on in terms of our relationship with digital infrastructure? I guess my approach to digital infrastructure is one that that is more questioning and is asking us for for thinking about a revision. So infrastructure to me is an interesting phrase because infra means from below, actually. It's the, and so we often think of infrastructure as the things that happen beneath our feet that we're not thinking about, that, you know, it's the gas pipes, it's the the telecommunications lines that we bury under the ground and so on. And so we often, um, there's a you know, famous set of infra- infrastructure theory that says that we don't think about infrastructure until it's broken because we, we tend to just live with it around us and we don't ever have to think about it until we need to fix it. Uh, library infrastructure would be another one, you know, library infrastructure, which would be all those things we talked about before, the ontologies, the ways of categorizing things. They're part of, of our knowledge infrastructures, but we don't tend to make them explicit. We don't think about them. So one way to think about this is to think about how we do make those things more explicit. How do we engage with infrastructure in a way that is more context inclusive so that we can understand the implications of what happens when we search in a library or online, what kinds of information or data is being kept in order for us to engage through 
WhatsApp or Messenger. You know, those kinds of things I think are very important and, and part of huge calls for rethinking digital infrastructure. But I'm also interested in the word structure in this context. So it's not just the infra, but the word structure itself. And we often think of structure as something that is top-down. So there's this bizarre cross-purpose in the phrase infrastructure. And, and I would like to think of how we engage as creators and users, but mostly as creators because that's the space I'm in and building digital infrastructure, in how we can think about making digital infrastructure without this idea that it has to be all-inclusive, one-size-fits-all, top-down, um, but actually is built from the bottom up. And there's there are some models for that. So um, there's a thing called urban acupuncture, which I find is a really interesting way of thinking about design. So it's this idea that you can, rather than uh, solving a problem by creating an infrastructure solution that applies to everybody all the time equally, that you identify um, construct, you know, the construction of pain might exist in a, a community. So it might be, for example, um, there aren't lights in a park that people have to walk through to get from a public transport stop to their home. A typical infrastructural response would be, we're just going to install lighting and we're going to install the same lighting and it's going to happen all over the community. An urban acupuncture approach would go, what do we need just at that particular point to solve that particular problem that the community will participate in and advise us and assist us with so that we get it right. And then once we do that, like acupuncture, once you identify the needle point and create relief in that particular space, then relief will flow through the system and other people will also go, well, we also have a lighting problem, but it's not the same lighting problem. It's a slightly different lighting problem, but we would like to solve that. And so on. And so you kind of build outwards in, an, in a, a way you kind of amplify the solution rather than build it from the top down across everyone. So I'm interested in that idea and how we might build infrastructure that's more responsive to those localized points, but has the capacity to scale or amplify appropriately into other places. And I call that digital infrapuncture to use that acupuncture <laughs> term. Um, and it's very hard to say, and it's very hard to say quickly. So, you know, <laughs> I hope I don't have to repeat it in this interview, but um, infrapuncture. I, I love that. And um, it, it is interesting because we kind of, you know, we identify a problem, we find what we think might be the solution, we roll that out and we kind of move on to the next thing, not really questioning whether it's appropriate uh, across, you know, a multitude of other situations that might, as you say, seem similar at, on the surface, but when you dig into it, there are, are differences. We're going to wrap up our, our time here. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. I just kind of want to end with I'm kind of going back to how we think about all of this. And this is something that, that has come up uh, as a theme throughout our conversation. I'm kind of wondering about how we get beyond ourselves. So we all have our limitations. We all have our lenses. We all have our ways of looking at things. You know, is there a role for, for technologies or any of the things that we've talked about, networks, infrastructure, data, AI, is there a role for any of that in enabling this ability to maybe get beyond our own, you know, lens, narrow view of, of this? Or what are your thoughts on that? I think at the moment, a lot of technology isn't helpful in 
enabling us to understand how to truly think outside the frameworks we already work within. And, you know, single search box, we talked about that, that reiterates what we already know because, it, you know, our only way of articulating the thing we're searching for is in terms that we already have at our hand. Infrastructure is built in such a way that we don't really understand our differences. We, you know, we're all just stuck inside the same frameworks that treat us all as if we are the same. So, you know, I think that this this is a really core problem and it gets back to the idea that uh, we have to try and think about our agency to change, to change, and and that agency is to change ourselves, right? And that's the way in which we engage with the digital is focused on the idea that we are concerned with what is done to us, and I'm equally as concerned by what we do and how we do it. And so we, it's not just about what is done to us, but about how we engage with others. And that's the, that's the thing about the relational shifting our thinking to trying to understand how we might live our relations better. And that, I mean, that's something, I think that's a huge question and it, it strikes me as we sit here in the middle of a pandemic relating to each other through a mediated experience, um, which is how most of us are relating to each other these days, just how challenging that can be. This pandemic has thrown this absolutely into relief, not just in p- because of technologies, but because the promulgation and the prosecution of the pandemic is through our relations. You know, again, it's I guess it's like we were talking about with infrastructure. It's not until something's broken that you have to then draw attention to it. Maybe this is the breaking of a set of assumed social relations that we now can reflect on. And we can come out of this and do better frameworks for those relationships and better thinking around them. Yeah, that, that's a nice, hopeful thought. I like that. Aside um, from that, I intend to just drink a lot of hard lemonade. <laughs> I was going to say, is your research appearing on any other beverages that you know of? <laughs> no, but this is, an, I really do want to change my KPIs to IPAs. You know, I think that, you know, from now on, it's, it's what I drink, not what I do. <laughs> I love that. Well, on that happy note, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Verhoeven, for being here on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. My Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kiosk.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. <laughs>